we have, uh, last week we jumped into, uh, well, we've been working through the book of Colossians. We're going to take a time out from that today. Um, last week we looked at the subject matter of how do I know that this thing called Christianity is real and true, um, that when I put my faith and trust in Jesus that I can have certainty in my faith uh, that the Lord indeed uh, will will bring me on to the happy afterlife that I'm looking for. And so today we kind of revisit some more of that evidence, some more of that kind of conversation. Um, our text today comes from John chapter 11. Everybody's fun discovering the lights here this morning. John chapter 11, verse 23. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip over there, or you can just follow along with us on the screen. That's fine as well. Um, let me give you just a little bit of introduction about John chapter 11. Uh, this is, begins the last week of Jesus' life. He is um, on his way uh, to the cross within a week's time. This is Saturday, John 11. He's going to be on the cross the following Friday morning. Um, and so he goes to, just, he just, his friend Lazarus has died. Uh, and so Jesus goes to his tomb and he's going to resurrect his friend Lazarus from the dead. And he gives some, some really important teaching about the resurrection in this passage. So if you would, let's stand together for the reading of God's word, John chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. And we stand week in and week out. Uh, to recognize, not just out of respect for God's Word, but also to recognize that this is where truth comes from. That it doesn't matter what somebody has to say on the outside of these walls. It doesn't matter what you heard on the radio or what somebody else thinks. All that stuff is secondary to what God thinks. And we don't have to wonder what God thinks because He wrote it down. And so that's why we stand week in and week out. So John chapter 11, we'll be reading verses 23 through 27. Let's read together from the Word of the Lord. Here we go. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes and believes in me shall not die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You may be seated. Thank you so much. You know, it is wonderful to look out this morning and see an absolutely full house. I don't even think, give the Lord a praise for that this morning. I don't know that we have an um, empty seat around. Um, and that's kind of been the standard over the last uh, number of handful of months, six months, something like that. So it's been great to see. We even threw three extra rows of chairs. I don't know if y'all noticed that over the last couple of weeks. Things got a little tighter on your rows. Did you notice that? So we threw three extra rows anticipating today and still had to break out chairs. That's wonderful this morning. So in verse 26, Jesus makes a definitive statement followed by a definitive question. And so let's take a look at the statement that Jesus makes, and then we'll look at the question. Here, he comes, here comes the definitive statement. He says in verse 26, Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then the definitive question, do you believe this? Now, what is Jesus saying there? Well, with that statement, Jesus is promising eternal life in heaven to anyone who believes in him. That's his definitive statement. Furthermore, he is promising that not only will your soul live on in eternity forever, but that one day your dead body will be physically raised back to life. The grave will give up your body. The sea will give up your body, wherever that body happens to be. And God will reconstitute that body. Friends, I don't know how, how that's going to happen. But I know that the God of the universe has the power to do that. He's going to reconstitute your physical body. It will meet with your soul in the sky when Jesus returns at the end of time. Let me read that statement again. Verse 26, he says, Everyone who lives and believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. So right there, Jesus is promising eternal life. Now, in case you're wondering, is that the only time that Jesus makes a promise like that? 
No, Jesus makes this promise dozens of times all throughout the gospel. So let's take a look at that together. Jesus was constantly telling people that he himself would be the first among many to rise from the dead. He said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, he says this to his enemies. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, after which he will then rise from the dead. So there's Jesus predicting after three days he will rise from the dead. He said to his friends, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21, he said, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, he would be raised back to life. Jesus said the same things to the crowd. John chapter 2 and verse 19, Jesus answered the crowd, destroy this temple. And in three days time, I, you will, um, I will raise it up again. And the Jews then said, well, it's taken 46 years for us to build this temple. Who do you think you are that if we tear this temple down that you could rebuild it again in three days? And the scriptures reveal, verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his own body. You know, it's interesting that the enemies of Jesus actually taunted him on this issue with these very same claims. They said, for instance, Matthew 27, verse 40, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Jesus is hanging up on the cross and they're shouting this stuff at him. You are the son of God. Well, come down from the cross. My friends, everyone in Israel knew that Jesus claimed that he was going to be resurrected from the dead. This was front page news. This was not something uncommon. This was not something that people didn't know about. It was front page news. Everybody knew about it. The real point is, did Jesus do it? Did Jesus resurrect from the dead? Well, I believe that the evidence says that he did. And so I want to share with you this morning four compelling evidences, four evidences that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. Um, compelling evidence number one are the Roman soldiers. Remember when the Jewish leaders went to Pilate and they said to him in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 63, they said, Sir, we remember, this is after Jesus had been crucified, we remember that this imposter said while he was still alive that he, three days he would rise again. And so the doctors of the law, the rabbis were very concerned about this, that Jesus' disciples might try and sneak in, steal his body, and then claim that he had been resurrected from the dead. So to shore up, to put a hedge a bet against that happening, verse 26, therefore they... Um, he, he asked Pilate, order the tomb be made secure until the third day. After that, I mean, if the disciples want to come and get him, that's fine. But Jesus had said he was going to raise after three days. So after, for, the, for those three days, we want to make sure that that, temple's, or that that grave is secure. Lest otherwise his disciples might go and steal him away, tell the people he's risen from the dead. Uh, verse 65, so Pilate said to them, all right, well, hey, look, here's a contingency of guard, a contingency of soldiers, and go and make it as secure as you possibly can. Verse 66, so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, when it says a guard, it does not refer to one person. This is about 15 guys plus their, their lieutenant or their uh, who, or the sergeant, whoever was in charge of these folks, this little squadron. And they would have had a deeply invested interest, get this, a deeply invested interest in making sure that their prisoner did not get stolen. Because for a Roman soldier to lose their prisoner meant that they would lose their life. And this is common practice throughout the entire Roman Empire for the many years that the Roman Empire was uh, running the show in that part of the world, that if a Roman soldier lost their prisoner, whom they had charge of, even if that prisoner was dead, that the Roman soldier lost their prisoner, that they lost their life. We see an example of this elsewhere in the Scriptures in Acts chapter 16. The Apostle Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi, and they're in the back of the cave, and they're singing and worshiping the Lord, and all of a sudden this earthquake hits it, the, cave, the, the doors of the prison fly open, and so Paul and Silas um, 
uh, holler out Acts chapter 16 and verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Why would he do that? Because he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. He figured, hey, look, I, I know that I'm going to get slain through as soon as, the, as soon as my lieutenant, as soon as my sergeant finds out that I've lost my soldier, so I'm going to go ahead and beat him to the punch. He's getting ready to jump on his sword. And Paul, knowing this, this was common knowledge across the Roman Empire that if a Roman soldier lost their, so, lost their prisoner, that they would lose their life. So Paul cries out to him, verse 28, with a loud voice, don't harm yourself, for we are all here. We understand what you're about ready to do, sir. Please don't do that. All of your, all of your prisoners are here. Folks, this was not some antiquated law that if a Roman soldier lost his prisoner, he would lose his life. This was not just some piece of legend. This really was the law of the land. If a soldier lost his prisoner, the soldier would lose his life. That's the way it was. Now back to the resurrection. Do we really think that three gals and some unarmed fishermen could have gotten past these battle-hardened Roman soldiers? Who knew that if they lost the body of Jesus, that they were going to lose their life? They had a whole lot at stake. Friends, when we look at that, um, it looks preposterous to even assume, to even presume that the, that the disciples would have stolen the body of Jesus. That leads me to our second piece of compelling evidence, and that is number two, that when the message began circulating around Jerusalem that Jesus had risen from the dead, the rabbis were desperate, desperate to um, hush that whole story. Um, look at Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 12. It says, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, that is after the resurrection, they've heard about this. Okay, what are we going to do with this, with this information that Jesus has risen from the dead? Um, it says that they conspired together uh, with what to do with the missing body. Verse 12, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. That is, they gave them hush money. They wanted the soldiers to pass around the story that the disciples had come during the night while the soldiers were sleeping um, and had stolen the body away. And so they paid these soldiers some hush money. You say, but Gordon, hold on a second. I thought you said if the soldiers lost the prisoner that they would lose their life. Well, look at the next verse. It says, verse 13. And they said to the soldiers, tell the people, his disciples came by way of night and got the drop on us. They stole him away while we were asleep. Verse 14. And if, he comes to the, if this comes to the governor's ears... We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. That is, if Pilate finds out about this, which likely Pilate's going to find out about this, we'll bribe him too. We'll pay him off too. We'll make sure that the whole story is covered, that every, all parts of this thing are, are covered. We don't want you all losing your life. We want you alive so that you can say that these disciples came in and stole the body. Interestingly, even after Jesus has ascended and gone up to heaven, the rabbis continued their desperation to keep this story quiet. Acts chapter 4 and verse 1 says, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, verse 2, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the rabbis arrested John and Peter twice. The rabbis beat them twice. The rabbis threw them in prison and commanded them twice, not to mention the resurrection, ever again. And Peter and John, of course, don't listen to what uh, the, the rabbis tell them to do. But the question occurs to me, why? Why did the rabbis spend so much time and so much effort and actual money 
to try and keep this thing quiet. The rabbis had another, a more, much more simple option. They could have gone to the tomb where Jesus' body was laid. They knew the disciples hadn't stolen the body. And they could have rolled the stone back. They could have retrieved the dead body of Jesus because they didn't believe he'd resurrected from the dead. Retrieved Jesus' dead body. They could have put his corpse on a cart and rolled that cart through the streets of Jerusalem. They could have done that. And friends, that would have ended all arguments. So why didn't they do that? Why did they go to all these other extremes rather than just go find the body of Jesus and show it to everybody and say, end of story. Friends, that would have been a lot cheaper, it would have been a lot less hassle, and it would have been a whole lot more conclusive. The reason that they didn't do that is because there was no body in the tomb. There was no body for them to go get, to put on a cart, and to roll through Jerusalem. All right, well, we've already agreed that no human person could have stolen the body because that, was, that Roman soldiers would not have allowed that. They would have lost their life if, they, if that had happened. And yet, if the body was not there for the, for the rabbis to go and get, then what happened to it? Right? Where, where did this body go since it clearly was not in the tomb? Well, that leads us to compelling evidence number three. And that's the evidence of the eyewitnesses who saw the risen Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3 begins to report the order in which people saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. For what I, he's, Paul writes, for what, I, for what I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, also in accordance with the Scriptures. Watch now, verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12 apostles. He appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to Peter plus the other apostles, so the 12 apostles, verse 6. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers all at one time, most of whom are still alive. He's telling the Corinthians this. He's telling them this, almost baiting them to, hey, go and find some of those people because they're still around. Some of them are still alive right now. You can go ask them, did you see the risen Christ? And so Paul has a real confidence about this information. He has a real confidence that they, if they were to go and ask one of these people, inquire of one of these people who had seen the risen Christ, that they would say, oh, yes, I sure did see him. I saw the holes in his hands and his feet. I saw the, the hole in his side. Verse 7 says, then Jesus appeared to James. That's Jesus' brother. Then to all the apostles. Verse 8, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also, Paul says, to me. You know, in my study in the commentaries, it mentioned this mathematical theorem called Bayes' theorem. I don't know if, uh, I'm going to guess nobody in here knows what Bayes' theorem, maybe there's like two people. I can think of maybe two people. But in any case, here's Bayes' theorem. This is what it is. And so this guy, he's a mathematician out of uh, Western Michigan University, um, and he wanted to contribute to um, the probability. What Bayes' theorem does is the little P there represents probability. The little uh, letter A is representing the miracle, if you were to plug in a miracle, and then the B represents uh, the testimony or the witness to the miracle. And so when you plug in the, the number of people that saw the Lord Jesus and you work it through this whole mathematical formula, you get what this guy concludes. He's a mathematician. He wrote an 11 or 12 page article. You can read it online. There's the title of it for you in that next slide. And here's what he has to say about this after he plugs in all this, all this uh, mathematical stuff with the resurrection. Here's what, he say, here's what he concludes. He says, the effects of multiple independent testimony on the posterior probability of an event are striking. He says, given a sufficient number of moderately reliable independent witnesses testifying that the event occurred, the posterior probability of the event will go up exponentially and will become arbitrarily close to certain. Now, I couldn't, I spent two hours this morning trying to figure out how to write out the actual mathematical equation and watching him work it out. 
apparently word processors don't understand fractions and that sort of thing. So what you get is Bayes' theorem and then what this guy has to write. But you, again, you can go look up the article yourself if you want to see him actually work out the math, and he does in his article that he publishes. But here's what that guy has to say. He factored that if just 10 people, not 520, if just 10 people uh, went to uh, great lengths to confirm that Jesus indeed resurrected, they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, that the mathematical probability of that runs about 99.99% that it really did happen. Isn't that wonderful? So that's the mathematical. So, when you're, so Mr. Bayes, thank you so much, Mr. Bayes, for, for confirming to us the resurrection through mathematics. Um, you say, but hey, wait a minute. What if all these people were lying? I mean, what if all these people just got together and corroborated the story, and they said, hey, look, if we all hold together and we all say that Jesus resurrected from the dead, um, would that be possible that, that, that if they're lying, then, then this thing was just a big hoax? Friends, that's not possible. In fact, that is impossible that these people are lying, and that's compelling evidence number four. Compelling evidence number four is the martyrdom of the eyewitnesses. The martyrdom of the eyewitnesses. I trust that you know that no eyewitnesses who saw the resurrection of Jesus ever recanted their story. Nobody ever backed out. Nobody ever wimped out. Nobody ever, when they were getting ready to light the torch, when they were getting ready to strike the hammer to go through Peter's hands, when they were getting ready to chop Paul's head off, no one ever said, whoa, 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 wait, wait just a minute. Somebody has put you up to this thing. Um, we're all here for, for reasons that we don't need to be here. I don't really want to feel like dying today. I don't feel like being burned to death today. No one ever recanted their story. For example, Peter was martyred by Herod, Acts chapter 12. Stephen was martyred in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 7. Thomas was martyred in India, John Mark was martyred in Egypt. Philip was martyred in Turkey. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia. The Apostle Paul was beheaded by Nero Caesar, and Peter was crucified upside down the same year that Paul was, was um, killed, also in 66 AD. But it wasn't just the apostles. It was the hundreds of these eyewitnesses that gave their lives rather than recant the resurrection. The Roman historian Tacitus says about the rule of, of Nero, and I quote, Christians were crucified or set on fire so that when darkness came, they burned like torches in the night. This is what Nero did to the Christians. And never once did someone recant their story. Friends, listen, people do not do this for a scam. People do not do this for a hoax. Sooner or later, somebody, because of the law of self-preservation, is going to crack, they're going to turn, they're going to come to their senses, they're going to say, hey, look, this is, this is all made up. This is not true. But no one ever did. They would sooner be burned alive or crucified upside down or have their heads chopped off than deny the resurrection. And friends, that is compelling evidence. These folks were not running a con. They really did see the risen Christ, and they were willing to die rather than deny it. All right, let's sum up what we've looked at so far how do we know that the resurrection really happened? What compelling evidence is there? Well, number one is the evidence of the Roman soldiers, which makes human tampering with the body of Jesus an impossibility. Number two, we have the compelling evidence of Jesus' enemies who could have stopped Christianity dead in its tracks if they could have just produced 
the body of Jesus and rolled it through town, but they couldn't because there was no body for them to retrieve. Evidence number three are the eyewitnesses, 500 plus of them, who had seen Jesus alive. And the probability of many uh, making the likelihood of the resurrection a mathematical certainty. And then finally, compelling evidence number four, we have the martyrdom of the eyewitnesses, people who are willing to die rather than recant their, their testimony. Friends, a person will rarely give their life for something uh, that they believe in. People will never give their life for something that they know to be a lie. No one ever recanted their story. That's compelling evidence for us. Now, can I prove to you in a laboratory that Jesus resurrected from the dead? No, I cannot. But I can give you such a preponderance of evidence that even Judge Judy would agree that we're talking about something that really did happen. And I think we accomplished that today. All right, well, <clears throat> every week here at Hebron, we always ask this question. It's, the, it's our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, that's really great for Jesus, that he was resurrected from the dead. I feel bad for those people that were willing to, be, to die for that, but nevertheless, they did. But again, I'm living here today in the 21st century. What difference does any of this make to my life? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Um, let me take us back to the wonderful promise of the afterlife that Jesus made. John chapter 11 and verse 26. Here's what Jesus said. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You know, there are lots of religions and religious leaders who have claimed to know the way to a happy afterlife. There are lots of religious leaders who have said, I know the way to heaven. But the question for them to ask and the question for us to ask is, are they right? I mean, of all of these people out there that are claiming they know the way to heaven, I mean, how do I know who's right? And who's wrong? People like Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormons. People like Muhammad, who founded Islam. People like Siddhartha, who became the first Buddhist. People like Charles Russell, who founded the Jehovah's Witnesses, all claiming that they knew the way to heaven. Again, the question is, how do I know who's right and who's wrong? Because the answer to that question is very important. I mean, our eternity hangs in the balance. We want to make sure we get this one right, correct? I don't want to get to the pearly gates and find out that I was wrong, find out that I put my, my faith and my trust in a wrong belief system. Um, so there's, there's, a lot hanging at, there's a lot at stake here. So how do we know which one of these is right? Well, in addition to the reasons we shared last week, and if you missed that last week, you can jump online, go back and listen to that. We would add this week that we can know which is right by answering one simple question. Who rose from the dead? Who rose from the dead? And that answers our question of how do we know who's right and who's wrong on how to get to heaven. Did Muhammad rise from the dead? No, he didn't. Did Buddha rise from the dead? No, he didn't. How about L. Ron Hubbard? Did he rise from the dead? No, he didn't. Joseph Smith, did he rise from the dead? No, he didn't. How about Jesus Christ? Did he rise from the dead? Friends, yes, he did. I love what the Bible says about this. Acts chapter 17 and verse 31, the end of the verse, it says that God has given us proof by raising Jesus from the dead. Proof of what? Proof that we are not following some cleverly devised scam. Proof that we are not unknowing participants in some conspiracy. Proof that we are indeed following the truth. Proof that Jesus is the way to heaven and that he can back it up because he alone rose from the dead. Friends, listen, follow a dead Savior and you will end up just like them. Let me say that again. 
follow a dead Savior, and you will end up just like him. But we have a living Savior. And our living Savior said, John chapter 11 and verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The question that he now asks you and I is, do you believe this? If you're here this morning, you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, Jesus is saying, I'm the way. You may have been searching through all kinds of different places, but I'm the right way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one, he said, comes to the Father but through me. Something for you to think about. One more thought. Um, you know, Easter for the Christian should be one of the most hopeful times of the year. Uh, we, we love birthdays. We love Christmas. We love all the different holidays. But Easter should be a day that is filled with hope. You know, we all have loved ones that have gone on before us. And Easter gives us the confidence to know that we will see them again. We serve a risen Savior who promised, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Friends, let the hope of Easter fill your heart today. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you so much for um, just speaking to us today from your word. We thank you for an opportunity to pause here on this Easter Sunday um, to be reminded, Lord, both of your great sacrifice, but also, Lord, of your victory over the grave. God, may that hope, may that hope that you are alive today, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, our living Savior, Lord, may that hope fill our hearts. God, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for our families. We thank you for all that you have done for us. In this moment of quiet, as we remember your sacrifice, may you just fill our hearts, Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. On the night which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke the bread, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he blessed the cup and he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink in remembrance of me. I'm going to invite at this time our ushers to come forward. I'm going to serve them first, and then our ushers will release you row by row to come to the front. You'll receive a piece of bread. You'll dip it in the juice and then eat that and make your way around the outside back to your seats. Um, if you uh, would like to uh, have somebody bring communion to you at your seat, our ushers will keep an eye out for you, and they'll, bring, they'll serve you at the end of our, of our communion service.